Well, uh, if you're uh, following in your note packet, we're in chapter, still in chapter one yeah. of uh, the book of Philippians. It will be in chapter one for quite a while. The book of Philippians, uh, just real quick to summarize, is uh, one of Paul's prison epistles. He is in prison in Rome. It's one of the four epistles that he wrote when he was uh, in prison. And uh, the, the church at Philippi, hence Philippians, church at Philippi was apparently a very dear and special church to him. It meant a lot to him. It's the only um, one of the 13 letters of Paul it's the only one about which he says nothing negative to, about this church. He has nothing negative to say about them. So <clears throat> one of the, it, it is, I still think it's one of the most astonishing prayers in the Bible. But verse 9 through 11 is the prayer that he prays for the Philippians. And uh, on the board, well, it isn't a board, it's a, what do you call that? A white pad, whatever that is, it's paper, and I've written on it. But I, w- <clears throat> I want to take that apart in just a minute. But for now, for now, I want you let your uh, eye go back to verse 6 for just a moment. Paul has said to them, For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, as we talked last week. That word perfect it means complete it, finish it, bring it to its uh, predetermined end until the day of Christ Jesus. This prayer is about that process. He declares his confidence that God who began something good in you, and that, as I understand it, is salvation, will perfect it, will bring it to its completion, its um, preordained end, so to speak, um, uh, for the day of Christ Jesus, which was all wrapped around the return of Christ and so on. So then in, in my Bible, what I did is I circled perfect it and circled love in verse 9, drew a line between the two. Because verse 9 through 11 is Paul's prayer for God to carry this out. But it is so instructive to me how he prays this. And by how, I, don't, I shouldn't say how, the content of the prayer that he, he prays. So what I'd like to do is read it one more time and then go to this mess that I wrote up here, and then we'll come back and take it uh, apart some more. Verse 9. Remember, verse 3 through 8 is just his thanksgiving for these people, why they mean so much to him. Now the actual content of his prayer. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere or pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Because you have been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Did you ever pray that for somebody? I didn't. I mean, I, I have taken this and prayed it with somebody. But normally my prayers are, Lord, bless my son Jonathan and his wife Irene. And their little baby that, you know, that, a little more than that, but it's that kind of general thing. Paul is really, it's, it's, it's almost overwhelmingly specific. So what I want you to do, and honestly, to me, um, this is what you should do when you read and study the Bible. 
You should try to put the things together, build the connections, because it helps you to understand more fully what is going on in the text. When I preach or teach, I always do this for my students or if I'm in a church or whatever. But you're here now, I have a board, it's blue, you can read it, so here we go. The primary prayer is love. And as you, um, at least I, I, I think you know this, the word for love that is used here is agape, which is a, uh, <clears throat> the Greeks had three words for love. This is the most, um, it's really astonishing, I don't know what the word to use. It's a self-sacrificing, other-centered, never self-centered love. And so he's praying, let's, let's really paraphrase this. My prayer for you is that you will develop, you will manifest, you will internalize, and you will exhibit the love that Jesus Christ showed for us in going to the cross and dying. A self-sacrificing, other-centered, for the sake of everyone else kind of love. I really embellished that. But that's what he's praying. And the result of that kind of, I'm not thinking of myself. It's not a self-centered, uh, self-indulgent, selfish life. It's a life that truly is seeking to serve others. I love God and I love others. That's, that's how that's worked out, as you know, in, in, the, in the teaching ministry of Jesus. That's what that means. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. That's what Paul's praying. And as you live like that, it will result in, and that's the clear, a love that results in knowledge and discernment. Knowledge, that's a, that's a content word. An understanding, a perspective of intimacy and purpose and meaning where you begin to see all things the way God sees all things. That will also result in, and I'm making it a noun because I think that's really the intent of this or various ways that's translated, but discernment. I'm reading from the New American Standard. <clears throat> they have all discernment. But a, a discernment about life, that's a wisdom word. That's a wisdom word in the Bible. It means that, that, that insight that you develop into the consequences of all your choices. So that you, be, you, you begin to develop that insight, that you begin to see the consequences of your choices. In other words, the way God wants you to see the importance of your choices. You're thinking through your choices. Now, I know I'm really, <laughs> I'm really a, a, a elaborating on these, but he then says, as that kind of love results in these two qualities of life, there is a purpose in God doing this. Now, you must see the theology of this so that you will be able to approve. Approve, and the New American Standard translates it, approve the things that are excellent. <clears throat> approve the things that are best in life. Word, there are two words that are translated excellent in the New Testament. One is a word of virtue, etc. Another is a word that's primary, beneficial. That's the word that's used here. Now, then 
also that you will be pure and blameless for the day of Jesus, his return, all that's wrapped around his second coming, because you are righteous. If you notice, it's a causal participle, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Christ Jesus. The righteousness which comes through Christ Jesus, how? See, this is the, this is the theology of this that is not clear at the first reading. The theology is the righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus by faith. That's justification. And then all this is to the glory of God. That's an incredible prayer, isn't it? And the answer to that is yes. So nobody's <laughs> saying that. But... Maybe it's because you're so overwhelmed. It, I, it is. It is one of the most, um, I mean, truly remarkable and astonishing prayers of Scripture. <clears throat> Let's, first of all, let me just, I don't want to say do you understand, because I don't think you probably do yet. I want to spend more time on this. But I guess what I want you to see, and that's why I've written it up here like this, is the connection between each word and phrase in this prayer. It isn't like, okay, I'm going to pray six things, and you just rattle them off. He's praying something that is theologically astute. It reflects, and of course you would expect that, I guess, from the Apostle Paul, but it reflects an understanding of what God is doing as he perfects us, completes us. This, he, he's praying what God is already doing. He's praying that this is what God is doing, and I want him to do it. I want him to do it with intensity, and I want you to understand what he's doing, why he's doing it, and how it's all connected. Okay? So, I presume you're going to get into this, but if not, I'll ask the question. How is it that love, agape kind of love results in these things. You're going to deal with that, aren't you? I am going to deal with that, yep. <laughs> it's the very first thing I want to deal with. Because, it, I mean, it seems like an unusual source of discernment and knowledge. But. <clears throat> yeah, I, I will deal with that in just a minute. Is there any, and I, maybe I, I shouldn't even ask that as a question, and I, I shouldn't even say, do you understand this? So I'm not sure. Is there anything you want to ask me about this? <laughs> yeah, I, I This is not fleshly love that you know we love. Uh, this not guy at all. Because he's just not the at all. This guy around and he's our, my best friend and all that. Or you know, uh, it, it goes beyond that. Even love for maybe a wife uh, in, in one sense. What role does the Holy Spirit is? Because this is, seems to be not just you go to a book and you read it and you go out and you practice it. This is a this is a living truth within us, is it not? After we receive Christ as Savior, yes. I, you know, can you? Kind yeah. Of well, uh, there are multiple ways I could address what I think is the overarching question you're asking, but it is a supernatural quality of life that only the Holy Spirit produces. Think of Galatians five twenty two. The fruit of the Spirit. What's the first one? Love, joy, peace, patience. So when you see the word, and again, it's agape, that's the Greek word, but a lot of, you, I'm sure you haven't, uh, this is the first time you've, you've ever heard of that. But the agape love that Paul is praying about here 
is the supernatural love that God the Holy Spirit produces. It's a fruit. You, I cannot consistently love that way. Because I hate people. I do. I don't like people. I mean, I'm being very blunt, but... No, no, no. It's a, it's a, it's a general. It's a, it's a, it's a general. It's a general overall statement. I mean, because I've told you this before. My preference would be, my preference would be to just every day go to my office and study all day. Don't I don't want to see anybody. You can bring my lunch to me. I don't, you know. But that's not. I mean, that's one. That's absurd. And but two. That's not what God's called me to do. And and what I mean is, you know, people because ministry is people and people. People are hard to get along with. People are, people are hard. It's it's hard to deal with all the idiosyncrasies. Hard to deal with. That's just the way it is. It's whether you're raising children or you. Know, I mean, I love my wife, and I've been married to her for forty five years. But first, Peter chapter three verse seven is still applicable to me. Men understand your wives. I've been a student of her for forty five years, and I, I now I understand about sixty two percent of that. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just, so, you know, even, but yet she's the greatest gift God's ever given me next to salvation. But it's loving her consistently day in and day out. I couldn't do it without the Spirit of God. So it's just, it is a, it is a supernatural quality of life. And that's why Paul's praying it. But go back to verse 6. One of the things God is perfecting in our lives is the capacity to love, which is what the Holy Spirit produces, which means in our own self-centeredness and in our own strength, or another word that's used in the New Testament, our own flesh, we can't do it. So Paul's praying this for the Philippian people. Okay, now, uh, you said you had a couple, or, or they all linked together in your sort of thread. Well, that word prove, I know you mentioned that, I believe, the other day, that you said uh, prove is prove. Is that, is that right or is that wrong? I mean, is no, it, not exactly. Okay. No. Um, hold off. We will get to that. Oh, okay. Is there anything about the structure? Do you, do you, is there just saying you want to ask about this before? All right, let's go. Let's go on now, and let's take it apart. What I what I'm interested in, you saying, Jim hit it right out of the shoot with the question. Love, okay. You understand what love is? Is that supernatural quality, that other centeredness? I do not think of myself. It's not a selfish, self centered, self indulgent way of looking at things, looking at people, looking at time or whatever. And the only way to think about that is a supernatural quality that God produces in our life. How long does it take him to produce that? It's our lifetime. It is our entire lifetime. Now, if, and it is that, as Jesus has asked that question, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The same word. And love your neighbor as yourself. Same word. So if, I rephrase that, when or as God is developing that in our lives, what's its relationship to knowledge and discernment? The text says, more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment. 
real knowledge. That's a value word. What is really important knowledge? The knowledge that flows from your intimacy with God. Because the word there in Greek is epigenosko. It's, a, it's not just a factual knowledge. It's just not a knowledge where, okay, now I know the facts and I got it. No. <laughs> Understanding the facts of who God is and all of that, you now begin out of that intimacy and personal nature of your walk. You begin to see things, people, circumstances, events, the way God sees them. Because you are abandoning self. It's no longer processing a friendship or a human relationship through the grid of selfish, self-centered manipulation for my benefit. It's now, God, I want to see that person the way you see that person. I want to thank them. Excuse me, I want to thank you for the the precious nature of the gift of my wife, because that's what she is to me. You gave her to me. That's seeing a gift from the Lord the way he wants you to see, and that flows out of your intimate, personal, loving relationship with him, where you're slowly but surely abandoning self and embracing others. So that knowledge and again, in the West, we think of knowledge just as a bunch of facts and rational proof. It is that, but it's much more than that. It's an intimate, personal depth of the relationship with God, loving God, loving people, so that you then take on his qualities, take on his perspectives, and you're seeing things, people, events, circumstances the way he sees them. That's part one. And it's, it's an amazing transformational thing. Because if I am beginning to love people the way God loves people, that means, as you know, much of my adult life I've been, been a teacher or been involved in teaching or education. And that is, that's absolutely central to a good teacher. You must see a student, not just where they are at that you know, space-time moment you're with them, but see their qualities, their, their giftedness, their strength, and the potential that's in them. And that you can have a role in developing that potential. That's seeing a person the way God sees a person. That's having a knowledge that about things and about people that's transformative. That's what loving God, agape, and loving people, agape, brings that kind of perspective. Another way, let me, let me use another cross-reference to this. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul has been, it's, a, it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, but he talks about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives and how important that is that the Spirit indwells us, who searches the depths and insights of Almighty God. We receive the Spirit, therefore we know God, His truth, His, His wisdom, and so on. And in the very last verse of the chapter, he says, we have the mind of Christ. I remember the first time I was really studying that, and I hit that, that, that like, leapt off the page. I thought, that's too bold. Lighten that up a little bit, Paul. The mind of Christ? Well, okay, let's think about it. What does that mean? We're omniscient? No, it doesn't mean that. In the context of what he's saying, and even things like this, you begin to see things, events, circumstances, people, the way God sees them. You have the mind of Christ. You have God's perspective on things. That's the kind of knowledge he's talking about. 
out of that abandoning self-centeredness and embracing other-centeredness, as you love God and love people, you begin to see things, that knowledge that God has about things. That's a great... That's a great and, and Paul seems to be saying the love that the Holy Spirit is going to produce in your life is one of the keys to having that. And I think that's true. It's just common sense in a way. As I'm thinking less and less about myself and less and less about self-indulgent, manipulative, controlling for my ends and my ends alone, I start to see people a lot differently. I start to see circumstances. Because circumstances are how God... Let rephrase that. The circumstances of life are one of the ways in which God grows us. Is that not what James means in James 1, 2? Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Who wants to do that? You know, who wants to encounter various trials and tribulations? I don't. What's the divine perspective on that? What's the knowledge of that? It's one of the ways God grows us. Okay, I'm beginning to get the knowledge because I'm beginning to deepen my relationship with him. And if I understand his sovereignty, I understand his providence, then quite frankly, there's no such thing as a coincidence. And if there's no such thing as a coincidence, that means everything that's a part of my life is part of the curriculum God is using to perfect us until the day of Christ Jesus. You say, well, hold on. I want to I, I drop this course, and I want to take another course. I don't like this curriculum. And God's going to respond, one, you can't drop the course. And two, the behavioral objective I have for your life is only going to be achieved through this. Now, I just made up a whole bunch of things. That's not... Behavioral objective or... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's more, but I'm just using it as a teacher. But it's just the, the way in which this knowledge is developed is the deepening relationship we have with God, our love relationship with God. I was going to ask you, uh, how do we deal with uh, our impatience with ourselves sometimes? You know, because everyone around this table uh, has, has screwed up in, in certain things. I can't believe that of you, Fred. Yeah, right. <laughs> and and uh, I'd be the chief of those. And how, how do we gather that patience so that we don't get so down on ourselves that we, we just want to pitch the whole thing and we say, well, I, I've blown off God here and I, I shouldn't have done this. I, you know, and, and even like coming to Bible study sometimes, you know, people will be disappointed that they missed the meeting and then they, they go, well, I, I've blown it. I'm just not going back. You know, how, how do we... How do you feel that we best deal with that as men? Wow, there are about three different ways I could address that. Um, First of all, I I think it is really important to always understand what forgiveness means when God is the object. In other words, God is the one who's forgiving. He's the subject. He is forgiving. That's that's a a wonderful um, attribute of our God, and always, always remember that. Forgiveness means there is... There is a forgetfulness when it comes to God. He no longer holds it against us. It's no longer something that's in his mind, if you want to speak of it that way. But I think perhaps a more important, um, a more important way to address what you're saying is, is twofold. First of all, 
if we do do something that's sinful I mean, or disobedient to God or whatever it is, uh, it is typical for the Holy Spirit to make us feel a sense of guilt. We've done something. I mean, guilt is genuine, but at the same time, we have to be so careful how we deal with that because guilt is immediately dealt with as we just agree with God, which is what confession means. Lord, I did that. You know I did it. I shouldn't have done it. I'm agreeing with you. And that's it. It's as far as God is concerned, it's over. If you feel any additional guilt after that, that's not of the Holy Spirit. You follow me? In other words, if you're having, you, you said, I shouldn't have done this, Lord, immediately from God, I'm sorry, but immediately from God's perspective, it's dealt with. They're, they're, God's not going to say, now look, I'm going to hammer you into submission. Because if I understand the Bible correctly, guilt is the worst motivator for permanent change there is. In relationships as well as with God. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit does use that. The greatest motivator for change is love. If you love me, Jesus says, keep my commandments. I am going to make you feel guilty, 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 and I don't care what it takes till you change. That does not seem to be the perspective that God has once we put our faith in him. And so the third thing that I would say, and I know I've mentioned this many times, coming to Bible study, that's the example you use, coming to Bible study like this is not a sacred act that merits favor with God so that if you miss it you're not performing for God and earning brownie points with God so that you can say okay God now you're going to love me more because I am a faithful attender to Bible study I've never missed if that's your perspective stop it that is not the perspective God has you come to Bible study and if your schedule is interrupted, you can't, don't worry about it. God is not, okay, you didn't go to Bible study. I'm going to get you for this. If that's your perspective, stop it. That is not the perspective God has. Performance, once you put your faith in Christ, performance doesn't matter to God. Now, obedient, but I mean it's performance to merit his faith. That's what I'm talking about. I'm going to perform, perform, perform. Then God is going to say, now I love you more. Now you're more accepted. There's nothing. Not, that is not biblical Christianity. That is not grace. So it's, it's, we've got to break that cycle of our thinking. And it's just it, it's hard to do that, but we have to break that cycle and see God as God wants us to see him as a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of compassion. His God of judgment is settled at the cross if we appropriate it by faith. God's no longer our judge. That doesn't mean God's our Heavenly Father, and he cares about us. It matters what we do. Sin is important to him, but the relationship's totally changed. Now, that's about a five-minute answer to your question, but, I mean, these things are all linked, I guess. Now, the second, the second result of that kind of love, and it's, it's also, it's, just a, it's almost counterintuitive. You don't think of it that way. But as you love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbors yourself, you begin to get that, the knowledge of God. You see things the way God sees them. That's the part. And secondly, this discernment. The, the text says all discernment. I told you before, I, I, I think I mentioned even when I was writing this on the board, 
discernment's a wisdom word. It's one of the many, many wisdom words of the Bible. So let's generalize it. As you walk with God in intimacy and fellowship, you also begin to get his wisdom. So in other words, that intimacy with him, that intimacy with him, that relational intimacy results in his wisdom too. Because, I mean, I, I don't think I need to say this, but I'll say it nonetheless, that love and intimacy got with God is cultivated by spending time in his word. He's speaking to us, talking to him, we speak to him, being with other believers. That's all a part of the walk. That's all a part of loving. And the end of result of that is that you begin to get God's wisdom, his insight. It's like, you spend time with your wife. I, like I said, I've been married to Peggy for 45 years. She has an enormous wisdom. How have I benefited from her wisdom? By walking with her. By walking through life with her. So the text says, as you walk through life with God in a loving uh, relationship and intimacy, as he is perfecting, completing you, what he's doing is you walk in, is he's giving you his wisdom. He's giving you his insight. You're beginning to get insight into the consequences of your choices. You begin to see time and, and spending time and thinking about time, managing time, I mean, all those things. But you know, also stewardship issues, money and property and the things that are a part of being the steward God wants. Stewardship requires wisdom and discernment is one of those so the more you dig into this you know this really does make sense if I'm with somebody and I'm, I'm mentoring a bunch of guys and what to me mentoring is all that I've learned in my life I want to share with these young guys God's saying I'm your eternal father I love you and I want to walk with you as you walk with me I'm going to help you learn the right perspective of that. I'm going to help you to become discerning I mean, it's, it's not that hard to figure out what he's saying. And that's what Paul's praying. So he seems to be saying one of the most important facts, factors, excuse me, of God perfecting us, verse 6, is developing in us, verse 9, the quality of love which comes from his spirit. Isn't it amazing how everything fits together? You almost think God has something to do with this. All right. As you acquire this knowledge, yes, Joe. I, I'm having a tough time wrapping my head around the difference between knowledge and depth of insight, wisdom. I think those two kind of go together. I'm just not getting the separation. They are inextricably linked. Oh, well, that's why I can't. They're not. Okay. I mean, they're you know. Uh, I mean, wisdom and knowledge are very much linked. This is almost trite, but in a sense it's true. Uh, wisdom is essentially how I learn to practically apply knowledge. Okay. Now that is, I'm not sure that's... I see. But I mean, they are linked. They are linked because as you, you know, knowledge, the way we're talking, as you see things, begin to see things the way God sees things, then you understand his perspective on things, then you begin to understand his wisdom and what is really important about my life. 
And you begin to develop that, every t- that insight. Every time I make a choice, I can see and understand the consequences of it, which is going to impact the kinds of choices I make. Now notice the next, verse 10. Again, when you see a so that in the text, any, any text, think of purpose. So as we develop, as this is developing in us, produced by the Holy Spirit, and these qualities are developed, these are the purpose so that we may approve. Now the word approve there is dakimazo. It's used in the metallurgical industry. It was used of metals. It was used of getting, getting all the junk out of, you know, I mean, you, you take like an ore of something that's found in the ground. I mean, like, like gold. I mean, it isn't just you find a thing of gold there, it's pure gold. That, that, you know that's not true. You've got to get rid of all the junk. And the only way to do that is put it in the heat. So that's the word that's used here. So that you may, appro- you may approve, you may assess and really understand the things that are excellent. So that as this is developed in my life, which produces this, I am now going to have the ability to assess, to approve, and the word that's used there that's translated excellent is I'm going to be able to choose what is primary, not secondary, I am going to really be able to approve what is eternally significant, not just temporally relevant. So, I mean, you can see this is very much tied to this. As these qualities are developed in your life, you're going to, you're going to be able to make the kinds of decisions about what's best for you. Putting it another way, what God considers to be best for you. What does that mean? Well, I, I, it can mean a zillion things. Here's the way I put it. And this is not necessarily you know, something you can go to a verse in Scripture, but to approve the things that are excellent, what that means is you begin to see and understand the things that are eternally significant. The things that are eternally significant. Begin to see the eternal significance of what I do. Question. Is there an eternal significance to work? Yes. Colossians 3, 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. One of the most succinct summaries of the work ethic in the Bible. Work hard. Work sincerely. Work diligently. Work consistently. When your boss isn't even looking. Why? Because you serve the Lord Christ. He's your boss. And he will reward you for that kind of faithfulness. So is there an eternal significance to my work? Yes, there is. So from God's perspective, and I don't understand, I honestly really don't understand the reward thing. I mean, I sort of do, but I don't, because in America we think of reward as an Olympic medal, 
you know, a, a gold watch. You know, that's how we think of it materially, which is okay, but I'm not sure that's all that God means by that. But all he's telling, because he doesn't explain what he means. In, in verse 24 of chapter 3 o'clock, he doesn't explain what he means by it. He just said, the reward of your inheritance. I wish he'd have said, by that I mean, you know, BTW colon and explained it. But he doesn't do that. But all over the Bible, you see that kind of stuff. So that's that you approve what is best. I'm approving. I mean, I'm testing and I'm understanding why I work, why I work the way I do, because I serve the Lord Christ. He's my boss, and that's the best. That's excellence to God. That's why the New American Standard Editors translated excellence. That's excellence to God. Seeing the eternal significance is excellence to God. I tell my students, uh, why should I strive to do the best in this class? And it doesn't always mean an A plus, but why? Because that's God's, that's God's core value. God's core value is excellence. That when God created the world, did he say, well, I'm going to sort of create a substandard world and see if everybody likes it. Then I'll consider something else. That's absurd. That's not how God, you know, I, I've grown with my wife, and it wasn't always the case, but I've grown to love flowers. Can you believe that? But I've grown to love flowers and gardening because of my wife. But in that, I begin, I've begun to appreciate a depth of God's perspective on beauty that I never had before. This year she grew zinnias. I don't know if you know what a zinnia is. They are absolutely, they're spectacularly beautiful flowers. And she brings them in about every three weeks. She brings a whole new crop of them. And, sits them. and you just stare at this, spe- or a rose. I never liked roses. Now I kind of like roses. Mm-hmm. Again, for the same, every, she has three different rose bushes. And they're all named something different. She knows what they are. But you put them in a little rose vase thing, you just stare at that thing. I mean, it's just, you're, you're approving what is excellent. And excellence is God's core, one of God's core values. And if this is the quality that Spirit's developing, which is resulting in these qualities of your life, then these are some of the evaluative things. You're going to become a person of excellence. And then, this is a statement, it's sometimes translated pure, uh, uh, what does it say? Sincere, blameless, pure, sincere, blameless. This is our standing. That, in other words, our life is going to be characterized in this way. More, more and more um, righteous, practically speaking, because, and verse 11 is a causal participle, because you are righteous. Because of the fruit of righteousness which comes through Christ Jesus. Because you're righteous, you're standing, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, you will now exhibit that righteousness in how you live. And all of it to the glory of God. It's a great prayer, isn't it? It's an amazing prayer. I'm going to pray that for you guys one time at the end of class today. I'm serious, I'm going to pray this for you guys at the end of class. But that, that's, that's kind of how we should think about going back to verse 6. What is God doing in my life? He began the good work when I put my faith in his son. Now he's perfecting it. 
What's one of the ways he perfects it? Chooses one quality of the fruit, one of the fruit of the Spirit, love, agape, love for God, love for people. And that, as he develops that in your life, results in the knowledge, the way we defined it, discernment, the way we defined it, so that you see the eternal significance of things and your life becomes more and more righteous in its activities, its actions, its thought. Because actually your standing is you are righteous and you're becoming what you are. And all of this to the glory of God. I'm telling you, there's this, this prayer, it's three verses, is packed with an enormous amount of theology. But it's all practical stuff. This isn't some ethereal thing that four people in the world understand, some theological doctrine. This is practical theology. This applies to you and applies to me if you put your faith in Christ. This is what God's doing in your life. We did it. And it's only 12.30. So think about, this is a lot This is a lot for you guys to absorb in a short time, but think about it. Questions, comments, thoughts, anything you want me to review again? Please don't, don't somebody don't ask me to go through all this again. I don't, but is there something that you want me to clarify or talk a little bit more about? I'm thinking about our most recent study in Ecclesiastes mm. where Solomon pursued mm. theoretically pursued wisdom. He took sort of the experimental approach. He did. Um, amazing if he had this insight. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So, I mean, I, I guess the lesson for me or for us from here is Boy, that is a very good insight, Jim. That is exactly what Solomon is telling us. I was wise. I asked God for wisdom, but I didn't apply it. I'm going to experiment and try it my way. I'm going to try this way. It didn't work. I'm going to try this way. It didn't work. I'm going to try this way. It didn't work. And finally, at the end of the book, he says, this is what I've learned. Fear God. Obey God. Because everything I do is important to him. Such an innocuous, simple, like, duh conclusion. But it took him his entire life to come back to that. Every time you don't have to raise your hand. Car, I find that my wife's got the channel on the radio turned to a Christian station. Oh, that's good. And uh, so rather than go over to Rock or something, I used to do it today. <laughs> and uh, they were talking about false uh, idols mm. and and uh, what they could be. They gave suggestions of what a false idol would be and, you know, like your achievements and your work and different things. And then they <clears throat> talked about, that's what Solomon was talking about, mm-hmm. that he had these false idols that he, mm-hmm. you know, focused on. Mm-hmm. And then they went on to say that there's a new movie coming out this weekend that, that makes reference to Solomon. It's called The Song. Is there a, there's a song of Solomon, isn't there? That's correct. That's one of the Old Testament books. Okay, well, there's a, one of the men that was in the, that was talking, was, <clears throat> he had something to do with that book. Really? Yeah. And okay, it's nice. this weekend, so I don't know. I, are any of the rest of you aware of that? I'm not aware of that. I, I didn't know uh, about that. Did you hear that? Yeah. Do you, do you know much about it, Joel? I just heard about it now. 
Is it the Song of Solomon? Yeah. Is it? That's the, it's kind of a modern-day adaptation of it, I think. I mean, I'm trying to... I know what's in the Song of Solomon, yeah. and I'm trying to picture making a movie about the Song of Solomon. Seriously. It's yeah. the same really? What I heard was that there was uh, this gentleman, whoever the star of the movie is, songwriter, had a real, yeah. real success or something around this particular song that he... Is that right, Dan? Oh, yeah. I'm not completely sure. But well, anyway, I heard that he had a real <clears> success... You know, and started to be real proud of himself, and then somehow mm. you know, the Lord spoke to him about mm. his pride, or his, mm. I, I don't know. But it's something like that. But I mean, it's it's around the so, a song, but I didn't know it was a song of Solomon. So right. I think the name is this. Mm. I'm going to have to find a little more about it. I, I, I'm totally unaware of that. I didn't know that. It, huh? Yeah, probably. <laughs> Today, do anything, and something comes up, but. Well, yeah, I mean, putting all that you guys have said together, that uh, and three of you have talked about it. Solomon exhibits, in so, in so many ways, Solomon exhibits a man who did not let God do this in his life. He said, no, God, I'm going to do it my way. And I think our tendency can be, even after we put our faith in Christ, our tendency can to be, Lord, I don't, want to, I don't want to do it this way. I want to do it my way. You know, Frank Sinatra's famous song. And and God God is a gentleman. He'll say, Okay, if it's what you want to do, I'm I'm going to I'm gonna do everything I can to get you back on the track, but you're gonna to have to live with the consequences of the choices that you make then. So here's a one sentence summary of it. Okay. I Googled it. Yeah. And this the song an aspiring song singer, songwriter's life and marriage suffer when the song he writes for his wife propels him to start. So it's yeah, it's a little bit of a larger picture. That's good. Do, do you know who it is? Does it mention who the the, the person is? I'm just wondering if I know who it is. Well, the director is Richard Ramsey. That's that's all. That's so right. The production company I know is, I, I believe, Affirm Films, which did like Fireproof. And, ah, uh, okay. When the game stands tall. Sure. Okay, those uh, movies. Yes. Okay, I'm familiar with that company. Yeah. No, thank you. No, no, it's all right. It's all right. Well, <laughs> all right. Any final questions about this prayer? I, and I'm not really sure how to phrase this question, but I, I find that my biggest struggle in all of this, and, and this prayer I think is very helpful, but the, the um, uh, on taking head knowledge and turning it to heart knowledge. Mm. for that discernment. I may even have the head knowledge of the discernment, but when the chips are down and you're in the furnace, like Fred, you said, mess it up. <laughs> and it has eternal significance, but, and, and also dealing with, you know, letting that guilt go farther than just the, the repentance, um, the heart knowledge of that, which is actually, I, I suppose you could equate it to unbelief if I'm not letting my guilt subside once it... Mm-hmm. In the sense that it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this, is all, this has all been great and, and, and pieces, so I don't really know what I'm asking here, but, and there's no silver bullet, I know, but um, what do you say to people who ha- maybe struggle with getting that head knowledge and, and really committing it to heart knowledge? Well, Andrew, I, there's only one way to look at that. And it is to understand the difference between, you know, if I, I'm going to answer in sort of a doctrinal way, but I'll, I'll comment after I make that sentence. It's always understanding the difference between justification and sanctification. 
And what I mean by that is to, you know, justification is that event in your life where you put your tr- trust in Christ. And as the end of verse 11 says, you are righteous. That's who you are now in Christ. <clears throat> but sanctification then is that process of becoming, if I can put it, and this is not a very theological way to put it, but becoming what you are. So what that means is you have the head knowledge. I am righteous in Christ. I can say that sentence. I understand what each one of those words means. But that 18 inches, it's going to take the rest of my life for me to move from my head to my heart. Where 24-7, I understand that practically. And I'm seeing the eternal dimension of everything. All that we've talked about here, I'm seeing that eternal dim- this perspective and dimension of everything. It's, it's a process, Andrew. And I think the worst thing that you can let happen, and it's true for any guy, including myself, the worst thing you can let happen in your life is hammer yourself with false guilt because you're not as perfect as you want to be. Don't let that happen. That's one of Satan's greatest traps, I believe. It, it just, you can hammer yourself into that. And people, you know, my, my wife, uh, when, she, when I first married her, Peggy really struggled with self-image issues because she was the third of three and her two sisters, you know, they were succeeding and then along came Peggy and everybody's comparing Peggy to her. And then she said, the best thing you did for me was to take me out of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, where she could develop her own gifts, her own strengths and see herself as she puts it, see myself the way God sees me. And that, and she's freed from that. It isn't even an issue with her anymore. But that was real. That was hard for her at first. That's an issue. That's an issue of beginning to the verses that we studied here. Beginning to apply those to your life and see. And the false guilt you can hammer yourself into that, uh, and it can become almost enslaving. I'm not as good as God wants me to be. Duh. Nobody around this table is as good as God wants us to be. But remember, you are becoming what you are. You are righteous. Nothing can remove you from that, Paul says at the end of Romans 8. But you're becoming now what you are. That's that Woody's favorite word. That's that process. And that, that, that helps us to always keep the right perspective. And again, I take you back to verse 6, Andrew. I'm confident of this very thing. That he who began a good work in Andrew will perfect it. You're going to complete it. How long is God going to take to perfect it? Until the day you take your last breath. Now, to me, that's a good thing to remember. Absolutely. There is no template of how God sanctifies people. I'm, I, don't, I know you, I know you better than I know most of the people around this table. But I really don't know all that God has done. But I'm positive the template for your life and how God is perfecting it is a lot different than Andrew's or Fred's or anybody else around the table. And that's okay. That's good. Because, I mean, think about it this way. God knows, in John chapter 10, it says, Jesus, the good shepherd, knows our name. It's a personal, intimate knowledge. That means he knows exactly, exactly the methodology he's going to use. To perfect us. It's different for Jim than it is for me. And that's a good thing. And that's why it is wrong for me to compare myself to Joel and say, well, Lord, look at what you've done in his life. Why aren't you doing it in mine? God's saying, would you knock it off? 
Joel's a lot easier to work with than you. <laughs> Jim, it says he, he, not us, mm-hmm. will perfect. Mm-hmm. He That's right. Perfect. He, so he you will can trust that. Mm-hmm. That's right. He is at work. Well, what are you going to do about those of us sitting around the table that feel rejection because you don't like us anymore? <laughs> Woody, I love you. What are you oh, talking well, about? In the way? Yeah, I, I agape <laughs> you. Yeah, that's it. Oh no, Woody, I I, I love you very much. You're you're a great guy. You're a miracle of God's grace. You really are. All right, yeah, Joel. Oh, I was just going to make a comment on some of the things and. Sure, you've read Sky Age's Tommy's book uh, with, and he makes a he has a story in there where he's talking to a group of college students at a Christian college, mm. all of them went to Christian high school, mm. and grew up in a Christian family, and they were all kind of commiserating about <clears throat> their failures. And, mm. and he said he went around the room and he asked all of them or the group or for the coffee shop where they were, you know, how do you think God feels about you because of what you've done in your sin? And every single student said, Well, I know he's disappointed in me. Sad or mad mm. or whatever, mm. every single one. And he said, You know, these are kids that grew up in the church mm. and go to a Christian school. And he said, You know, how does God see you in your sin? He loves you mm. in your sin. Mm. And just, you know, as you know, so whether it's us or those students mm. or whatever, it's, I mean, it's hard to grasp because that's not mm. how it people, is. Absolutely. If I was God, mm. I wouldn't love people when they were that's disobeying right. me. That's right. But that's right. Yeah, amen. <laughs> because and and I I think it's it, it, this results from just a terrible theology about God, but also a terrible theology about grace. We just somehow cannot get that across to people as well as we should. But it 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 just seeps into our thinking. What what I just did caused God to love me less. There's nothing in Scripture that says that. Nothing. What you do does not affect God's love for you. That's performance-based sanctification. That's horrible. And you, you can hammer it. You can make it false guilt. I, I, a Friday night, we had a group of people. We have a newcomer's dinner for people at our church. and We're you know, a new church and so on. And so it was my turn to attend it. And one of the ladies, she just started coming to our church. She's an older lady, and she said she comes from a... Pentecostal background, she grew up in another place, but she said, every Sunday I would leave guilty from church because all the pastor did was just hammer us with all the things we were doing wrong. And she said, I, for years and years, I would hate to go to church, but I went to church because I knew if I didn't go to church, I'd feel even more guilty. <laughs> I'm, I'm, sitting, I'm thinking, all oh, this dear, and she, was, she had tears in her eyes. I mean, this is unbelievable. I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, Lord, how do you want me to respond to this lady? Because she went on about for five minutes, and I just said, listen, there's a lot I could say, but I just want, I want to say one thing to you. There is nothing you can do that's going to cause God to love you more or less than he did the moment he saved you. He loves you with an infinite, immeasurable love. Do not allow somebody to hammer you into a performance-based approach to your walk with him. Where you have to perform, then he'll love me more. Or if I do bad things, he's not going to love me as much as he did yesterday. And she, said, she looked at me. She said, I have never heard anybody say that. 
I mean, that's, that's an unbelievable sentence for me to hear somebody say. But I suspect, now the way she articulated may not be the way some people articulate, but I suspect there are an awful lot of Christians running around that have that same perspective. And they get enslaved to that. And it's, a, it's an utterly, totally defeatist mentality. And the guilt is false guilt, and it just, and again, I'm not saying what the Holy Spirit can use to bring us to repentance. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, you know, you, 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 you've walked with the Lord, you've asked the Lord to forgive you, that's done. But the kind of false guilt, I didn't go to, I didn't go to church because I didn't feel well. Oh, no, the Lord doesn't love me. Oh, he, he hates me for that. There's absolutely nothing in the Bible that says that's true. I mean, it's just, that's absolutely the wrong way to look at God. The look at God as a God who's gracious, compassionate, and merciful. And I see his love for me at the cross. I've appropriated that to my life by faith. I'm his. I belong to him. He's my heavenly father. And there's nothing I can do that's going to cause him to love me more or less. As Joel correctly said, he loves me in spite of my sin. But he is perfecting me, as verse 6 says. Another word for that or phrase for it, I think, would be just unconditional love. Absolutely. Unconditional. God sets no conditions on it. I recently, we had a service and pastor preached on it. Great word. Great word. Man, I'm going to pray this prayer for all of us. Father, we're grateful we pray this prayer of Paul from Philippians for all of us, myself included. Dear Lord, I pray that uh, your love may abound still more and more in each one of these men so that that will result in their lives in real knowledge and in all discernment. With these purposes, Lord, that you may continue to develop in them because of the knowledge and discernment that results from their walk of love with you, that they'll be able to approve and really assess what is best, what is excellence, that that core value of yours will become their core value. They will see the eternal significance of everything they do because everything they do is important to you. And also, Lord, as they develop those qualities of knowledge and all discernment that results from their loving walk with you, they also will be manifesting what they already positionally are, sincere, pure, blameless, because they are righteous. When they put their faith in Jesus, they were declared righteous. They are becoming what they are. Thank you for that wonderful process of perfecting in our lives the things that are important to you. You are sanctifying us. And as Paul says at the end of this magnificent prayer, this is all done to the glory and praise of God. You get the credit for all of this, and we praise you and thank you for it. So do this in these men's lives as well as in my life. May we be what we already are, the trophies of your grace, and may we represent that to other people well in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week.